Hello and welcome back to our podcast. It's October, the season of mists and mellow fruitfulness and monsters, and we've got something a little bit special planned for you. Rather than our usual interviews, we're going to be bringing you our favourite scary stories from some of our favourite queer authors. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome you to Halloween at An Earful of Queer. Tonight's story comes from uh, rather close to home, uh, to round off our Halloween season. Uh, This is a story called The Last Drag Show on Earth by uh, me, Matthew Bright. Um, It originally appeared in Revolutions, an anthology of Manchester-based speculative fiction, um, and is set on our local um, local gay village on Canal Street. Uh, Hope you enjoy it. The Last Drag Show on Earth by Matthew Bright. They come out of the dark to Tallulah's. Alone and in groups, they make their way along the street, follow the yellow brick road amongst the cracked and rancid cobbles. The fairy lights are lit in the trees, just like they used to be once upon a time, in flagrant disregard for the regulations. Not that they need telltale lights as targets to drop the bomb these days, or like any of them believe the regulations really have anything to do with safety. Regardless, it doesn't matter tonight. Tomorrow this street will be gone, sealed away for decontamination by the machines from the south. This is the final hurrah, the swan song of the last speakeasy in Manchester. And of course it's here, on Canal Street. Of course it is. One by one, far more orderly than a Friday night crowd has any right to be, they present themselves to the bouncer. There's all manner slinking through the wreckage to join the queue tonight, a kaleidoscope of hairstyles, a barrage of outfits... They've outdone themselves for the occasion. There's representatives of all the genders in every configuration of grouping imaginable, although it's so hard to tell these days when you can never be sure what's really written on the skin underneath. The bouncer shines her torch where they indicate, a neck, a hip, one smart aleck who bends over and points at his podgy left buttock. In the incandescent beam, the glamour tech ripples and shorts, and you can see clear through to the pink lipstick triangle on the skin, tonight's secret sign, passed in whispers around the city. The tiny bar is nearly full to capacity. Tallulah has outdone herself. She's stripped out all the threadbare old tech and taken the bar right back to how it was at the turn of the century. This is beyond retro, and into historical. Behind the bar, men in old-fashioned tank tops are handing out drinks. No charge tonight. Bottles of the kind too obscure for even the hipsters to get their hands on these days. WKD, Bacardi, VKs, even honest-to-God Coca-Cola. How she's procured them is anyone's guess. The crowd jostles and press against each other impatiently. Looks are exchanged and assets are assessed, but there isn't the usual frisson of sex in the air that any other night at Tallulah's might have carried with it. Not that Tallulah's on a regular night was all about cruising for sex, because there were better places for that. Anyhow, it was so difficult these days. Half the time, if you pulled a cute guy into the cubicle for a quick fumble, they'd drop the glamour and you'd find yourself with an entirely unexpected set of genitalia on your hands. You can screw with the glamour still on, of course, but that's only for the real perverts with no regard for health and safety. In the tiny cupboard she calls a dressing room, Tallulah finishes strapping on the ninth layer of quick-change dresses and sits to apply her makeup in the ancient mirror surrounded by a rectangle of doddery light bulbs. The place is full, darling, Shiver tells her from the door. 
Tallulah presses her face close to the mirror, inspecting her makeup, turning it side to side to check the contouring. Spectacular. Even if she does say so herself. Tallulah raises a lumpish hand, points a single lacquered nail into the air decisively. Play something to get them in the mood. Let's get a little nostalgia flowing, shall we? There's an encouraging cheer from outside. They can glimpse her through the open door. They're waiting. Play something old, she says. She touches up her lipstick. They're not ready for me yet. They come out of the dark to Tallulah's. The dark waters of the canal awaken and releases those who sleep in its eddies to walk the street. Brackish water trails their footsteps. They say no words to each other. It is not clear if they even see each other. Perhaps they do not even see the street as it is now. Perhaps, instead, they see it as they remember it. Aloysius Cole was an officer in the war, but probably not the war you're thinking of. He wrote poetry while he served, page after page in a notebook he was given by his spinster aunt the night before he set sail. She had kissed him on the cheek and reminded him that he should remember who he was at war, because men often forgot. And she, better than anyone knew who he was after she'd caught him with, well, it, it didn't need to be said out loud, did it? The book was lost, not dramatically in a bomb or a fire or anything like that, just sometime in the last few days before victory was declared. Gone. He didn't miss it too badly. Instead, he returned home to his wife, who, with trembling lip, showed him the child in the crib that could plainly not be his. He kissed her on the forehead, and then did the same to his new son. Some months later, on the way home to his wife and children, he took a detour down a street he had heard of but never visited. There weren't many bars then, although, of course, there was Tallulah's decades before it was called Tallulah's. Sipping whiskey in a quiet corner, he was approached by a man. Older and gentle, they fell to talking. The man told him he was a poet. Aloysius did not tell him about the lost notebook. Under the bridge by the canal, the poet turned Aloysius round and yanked his trousers down and round his thighs. A little while later, when Aloysius turned to try and kiss him... He startled and lashed out. The cold stone received Aloysius' temple with a wet finality. The, the poet ran, and so did Aloysius' blood. Tonight, the bouncer doesn't even give him a second glance. The crowd are getting impatient, albeit in a jovial, benevolent way. They're stomping for Tallulah, despite the best efforts of Shiva Matimbas doing her routine bit on stage with the torch. Ezekiel Hodge is a boy tonight, and he's caught the eye of a silver-haired gentleman by the bar. Ezekiel likes the distinguished type, although he's not quite as sold on the man's husband's lolling on either side of him. They look rather gauche, and Ezekiel can't help feeling that they're unlikely to appreciate the true significance of tonight's entertainments. They wouldn't know drag if it popped an inflatable breast in front of them. No sense of heritage. Still, if it's a package deal... He approaches the man and introduces himself. The man shakes his hand. My name's Magnus, he says. A good name, thinks Ezekiel. Rich, like something from a storybook. They talk a little of this and that, of how the bar isn't what it was when Magnus was young, and how youths like Ezekiel couldn't begin to imagine it, no matter how many photographs or movies they've watched. Ezekiel smiles politely. On stage, Shiver gyrates the torch, issuing gargantuan chortles whenever the beam ripples the facade of her outfit enough for the punters to glimpse that, 
just maybe, just maybe underneath it all, she's a man. Ezekiel bites his lip. Glamatech, however expensive, isn't real drag. Shiver's torchbeam rakes suggestively across the audience, and Ezekiel catches a glimpse of the flesh beneath Magnus's glamour. It is youthful in first flush. For all his talk, he can be barely twenty. You young'uns wouldn't remember, would you? Magnus says to Ezekiel, and the words ring as false as his glamour. Ezekiel backs away, recedes to the shadows, sets his sights on someone else. There, by the door, in a war uniform, though probably not the war you're thinking of, with impeccable attention to historical accuracy. A long way from the reaches of Shiver's torch, where the beam could not possibly catch him, and there is no chance of the man in the ancient uniform catching sight of the sag of ten decades that hangs beneath Ezekiel's own glamour. Failing singularly to appease the thickening crowd, Shiver ducks into the cupboard-come-dressing-room. Tallulah, they're waiting! Tallulah shakes her head. Not yet, she says. They're not ready for me yet. Elizabeth Bennet, fully cognizant of the absurdity of her name, had never read a book to the end. Instead, she painted, from the day a paintbrush was first thrust into her chubby infant hand to the day she died, although it was not a straight line in between. When she was ten, she painted pictures of her back garden. Sometimes the girl from next door leaned over the fence to watch her. Sometimes she did not. Nevertheless, the girl appeared in all of her pictures. When she was fifteen, she plumped up her breasts and conned her way into coyotes, at nearly 1am after sipping three sweet cocktails that were better named than they were flavoured. She was surprised to find herself sat opposite the girl from her back garden, grown up but unmistakable. She was deep in conversation with another girl, a woman really, but she caught Elizabeth's eye and smiled. The woman asked Elizabeth's neighbour how old she was and her neighbour answered 18 and gave Elizabeth a conspiratorial wink. When she was 25, the national newspapers declared Elizabeth the foremost painter in the UK. After she conducted a couple of interviews, they started to call her the foremost lesbian painter in the UK, and the extra word never disappeared. When she was 27, she put on her second exhibition. She hung paintings in pairs next to each other. One, the awkward childhood drawings she had rescued from her mother's attic, hung beside a new, repainted version. Improved, she thought. In a breathless gap at the opening, she looked at the collection and thought to herself, When I have a daughter, I'll give her all my paintings and she can copy them, and we can hang this exhibition again in reverse. It'll be a sensation. And then, there was the girl from her back garden, stood with her head cocked, looking at the twin visions of herself in watercolour. Elizabeth drew breathlessly near. Excuse me, she said, I, I couldn't help notice you looking. The girl turns and smiles and introduces herself, and Elizabeth too, though she goes by Lizzie. Elizabeth is smitten. When they were thirty, giddy with the novelty of a change in the law, Elizabeth and Lizzie were married in celebration. Elizabeth's mother was not present, but Lizzie's was. A world-famous photographer took the pictures. When she was forty-seven, Lizzie died, and at eighty-six, Elizabeth followed her. She was found after a month in her studio above Canal Street, surrounded by hundreds of paintings, a platoon of portraits of Lizzie at aged fifty, sixty, seventy, a hundred, and at aged ten in a quiet back garden in Manchester. 
The bouncer is stooping to inspect the pink triangle on the ankle of a stilettoed biker bear and doesn't notice her slipping quietly into Tallulah's. Emmeline Panic, for such is her chosen if not God-given name, is a rock chick of the most subtle variety. She eschews the obvious choices that Glamatech placed before those of the sartorially rebellious nature. No plastic androgyny, no physics-defying piercings, no choreographed tattoos. Instead, she cleaves tight to the old mother's saying, we are all born naked and the rest is drag. Every breath from our very first is a performance, and Emmeline panics more than most. Straight out of university, she had conned her way into a contract with a major publisher, and since then her whole life has been a performance, each year subdivided neatly into the chapter of the eventual book. At first, she started impersonating the obvious ones. She'd been Marilyn for a year and Gaga. Easy and ostentatious. When, in her tenth year, she'd essayed the Mona Lisa, she knew she'd found her groove, the elusive women of great art. Tonight is a first outing, a test run in the dead days between Christmas and New Year, when the publisher's dictadrones are off duty. Time to smooth out the rough edges in the performance, and it was fitting anyhow to appear here tonight on Canal Street as... as her. On stage, the drag queen is failing for the second time that evening to amuse the crowd. Poor woman, thinks Emmeline, an average performer, quite frankly. Despite the towering wig and wafer-thin heels, she just doesn't commit to the role. Then she notices the woman watching her, an old woman haggard in the way that old women aren't anymore, like she's from the History Channel. She has white hair, shoulder-length. She's wearing a nightie of all things still. Emmeline thinks, who am I to judge? The woman approaches her, and Emmeline shifts uncomfortably. Looking closely, she wonders if maybe the woman isn't all natural, without a trace of glamour There's a few like that going round in a minute. If they weren't careful, it'd become a fully-fledged movement. "'Excuse me,' says the woman. Her voice is barely there, as if it has been swept away the second it leaves her mouth. "'I, I couldn't help notice you looking.' Emmeline simpers sweetly. "'Hello, dear.' she says, unsure what else to say. The old woman cups her cheek. Her touch is cold, which it shouldn't be, not at the amount Emmeline's glamour cost. Lizzie? Emmeline's face lights up. Yes, she says. I'm so glad you recognised me. I've been so worried. I thought she might be a little too obscure, you know. She might be mistaken, but there are tears in the old woman's eyes. In the dressing room, Tallulah silences Shiver before she can even speak. Nearly, darling, nearly. She casts a scarlet smile back over her shoulder. Do your three-legged can-can routine, that always goes down a treat. The door closes and Tallulah stands, smoothing her skirts in front of the mirror, adjusting her bosom. They're nearly ready for me, she whispers to herself. At 5.30am... Alex Dale throws herself from the bridge into the cold waters of the canal. Although the coroner later placed the time of death anywhere between 5am and 6am, the time could be stated exactly. Z jumped the minute that a notification symbol popped up on her wrist, and Z knew it had been published. No backing out now. Then Z was gone. On her desk at home... A screen was left awake, and beside it the Glamatech strap with its shattered stinger. Four months saving, 
This stuff is new and expensive if you want the ones that support the hacked outfits, and gone in one swing of an angry fist. At 5.30am, the screen pings. It doesn't bear repeating the contents here. The majority of it was for her father. Some of it was for the world at large, though, in the swell of history it would turn out that the whole thing would be for the world in a way. There are phrases that jump out. There's the ones the campaigners use. Not a choice, neither one nor the other, not a phase. And then there's the ones that no one seems to notice. Sorry. Love. Daddy. That last one especially. Daddy, they're not ready for me yet. Later they call it Alex's law, but it doesn't make any difference to the canal. You're not ready for me yet. So, they come out of the dark to Tallulah's. Not just these three, but all the other ghosts. The mollies in their frock coats, the happy drunks who slid into the water instead of another man's bed. The old, the young, the men blackened by lesions with the skin loose on their bones. The women who loved loudly and the women who loved secretly. The bouncer doesn't see them all, perhaps just pretends not to. And anyway, the show's about to start. Shiver is panting. She's never had to work so hard for so little applause. It's Tallulah they want, and it seems it's Tallulah they're going to get. She pats her hair. I'm ready, she says. They're ready. Shiver crosses to her, embraces her like a mother. There's more ghosts than bloods out there, she says. I've never seen it like this. Not the most I'll even notice. Tallulah breaks the hug. Well, once the morning comes, it'll make no difference, she says. We're all ghosts now, really. Shiver licks a finger and dabs a spot of errant makeup on Tallulah's face. Knock em dead, bitch. The last true drag queen on earth. Tallulah fingers her corset. And don't I just feel it. There's an impatient cheer from outside. I am what I am has started, and most of them know that's Tallulah's song, the one she comes out to every night. I'll do the honours, says Shiver. She turns to the door, primps herself. Is he out there? asks Tallulah quietly. Shiver doesn't look back at her. I don't know, she says. You'll have to go out there and find out. Then she flings it open and prances out. The crowd roars appreciatively. Her voice booms, barely muffled by the thin walls. Right then, you horrible lot. Are you ready? I said, are you ready? Yes? It's time to introduce her, the one, the only, the incontinent, Tallulah Trout. When it's all over, and they've all gone home, even Shiver, whose battery runs low in the last ten minutes, reverting her to a portly thirty-year-old in ill-fitting underwear, Tallulah returns to the dressing room and locks the door tightly behind her. She sits in front of the mirror and begins to meticulously remove her makeup. It doesn't take long, stripping back layer by layer, lipstick swiped away to reveal the thin, cracked lips beneath, the removal of contours transforming the rounded full cheeks into sharper masculine forms. Then the eyebrows and the eyelashes, and she's left with her ordinary face. A pedestrian, unremarkable face, a brother, or a father perhaps, but one easily forgotten. When the light bulbs switch off, Accompanied by the sound of all the electricity in the bar shutting down, she knows the machines are near. 
The last dress of the quick change is dark blue with military insignia, like a naval captain. There's a bit that goes with it, sweeping up the most bearish man she can find in the audience to do a gender-swapped officer and a gentleman. Well, a good captain always goes down with their ship. And so, they come out of the dark to Tallulah's, for these days even the mornings are dark. The machines and the men in the masks with their seals and their fire. The flames reflect from the black waters of the canal, where Aloysius, Elizabeth, Alex and all the others silently watch as Tallulah's vanishes in smoke. The men with the machines don't see them, or perhaps they pretend not to. When she closes her eyes, Tallulah can't feel the blistering heat anymore. Instead, she imagines she's sinking into black waters, swimming free towards the others up ahead of her, the last true drag queen on Earth. That was The Last Drag Queen on Earth, written and read by myself, Matthew Bright, and it originally appeared in Revolutions, uh, Manchester Speculative Fiction. Uh, I'm going to read my bio now, because uh, saying the self-promotion is technically necessary, uh, but trust me, as a British person, I am dying inside as I do. <laughs> um, I'm a writer, editor, and designer, uh, who's never quite sure what order those come in. Uh, my short fiction has been in a number of places, most recently Tor.com, uh, Steampunk Universe, Glittership, Harlot, Clockwork Iris, uh, Nightmares Queer Destroyed Horror, and various others, and I'm also the editor of several anthologies, including The Myriad Carnival, uh, Threesome, and the recent Clockwork Cairo, uh, Steampunk Tales of Egypt. Uh, you can find me on my website at matthew-bright.com or at mbrightwriter on Twitter. Thank you. And now, time for some real-life horror. Playing you out for tonight, we're delighted to bring you a short excerpt from Queer Hauntings by Ken Summers. Uh, it's a wonderful collection combining historical fact and unearthly encounters to explore eerie locales with a queer bent. Behind the shadows and doors of societal homophobia hide pink phantoms and lavender apparitions in cities and towns spread across the globe. From haunted bars in New Orleans to an old theatre in London, this guide encompasses the other side of the supernatural. It's out now from Lethe Press in paperback and audiobook, and it really is a great collection, so do check it out if you like what's coming up. Uh, or go seek out more about Ken Summers at moonspenders.com or at moonspenders on Twitter. Langollen, Wales. T for two. The Ladies of Langollen. True love can defy convention. It can break down any barriers we create in our society. People are often willing to set aside differences in age, class, ethnicity, and even gender to be with the one person who gives their life meaning. And this powerful force propelling emotional needs can be strong, so strong as to defy our worldly existence. Near where a small creek flows to meet the Dee River, a magnificent manor looks down with its black-and-white edifice. It is a home built of love and devotion. The two women responsible for its transformation from quaint cottage to Tudor house have been a part of Welsh history and lore for more than two centuries. The oak-and-plaster rooms may no longer echo with the voices of the ladies of Langollen, yet some people believe their spirits linger on. Sarah Ponsonby was a tall, genteel girl, the daughter of an earl. During her teenage years, she was orphaned and left penniless. Her cousin, Elizabeth Ponsonby, 
took pity on the young woman and invited her to live with her and her husband, Sir William Founds, at Woodstock House in the town of Innisteague, along the banks of the River Nore. Their only daughter had recently married and left home. Sarah filled the void in their lives. She was gentle by nature with a pleasant disposition. Everyone she met quickly took a liking to her, including her adopted father, William. Mr. Found's interest soon turned to infatuation. He openly expressed his undying love for the young Sarah, yet she did not share the same feelings. Upset by his advances and disturbed by any possible harm to her dear cousin, Sarah took to hiding in the vast gardens and spending long periods away from Woodstock in an effort to avoid the situation entirely. Among the many friends she would visit in the region was an acquaintance from her days in boarding school, a rather stout and older woman named Eleanor Charlotte Butler. Eleanor, nearly sixteen years Sarah's senior, took an immediate liking to her youthful friend. She was a descendant of aristocracy herself, the daughter of the sixteenth Earl of Ormond. Educated in France and thoroughly independent by nature, Butler acted as a mentor for Sarah. It wasn't long before Sarah confided in her the difficulties of her home life. Eleanor, too, felt unhappy with her living situation. Her family lacked the refined tastes she had acquired abroad and shunned her for being highly educated. She longed to escape and be truly free. It was then that the two women began forming a plan. Together they would run away. They would elope and live out their days together. The Irish countryside was too oppressive. England was too far from home. Sarah and Eleanor decided on North Wales and its notoriously beautiful landscapes. A date was set for their flight. Butler planned to hide at a ruined abbey and wait for Sarah, where they would set course for Wales. Eleanor waited, but Sarah never arrived. She went in search for her friend and found her beneath a high wall where she had sprained her ankle. The pair were discovered and hastily made excuses for themselves. Defeated, they each returned home, plotting their next move. After two months, Sarah and Eleanor tried to flee on foot. During their journey, a strong storm struck. They sought shelter in the dank dampness of an old barn. The following evening, the sky lightened and the two ladies set out for Waterford. They wandered along the quay, examining a boat bound for Bristol, where, to their horror, they encountered Sarah's cousin, Elizabeth. Someone had tipped the family off, and she had tracked the women to the port city. Though Sarah and Eleanor were defiant, they finally admitted defeat. Sarah was led home, while Eleanor's family made plans to send her to a convent. The night spent exposed to the elements took a toll on Sarah. She became ill and was bedridden for days. Elizabeth and her daughter used the time to dissuade Sarah from any further plans of running off with Eleanor, but it was of no use. Sarah still cared deeply for her close friend. Each day a letter would arrive at Woodstock from Eleanor, asking her to trust and believe in her, and not give in to the family pressures. After regaining her strength, Sarah escaped for a secret meeting with Eleanor, now living alone in the town of Boris. In April 1778, Eleanor came to live at Woodstock House, officially as one of Sarah's maids. Renewed by the strength of their unity, they felt more determined than ever to escape. Sarah revealed Mr. Found's adulterous conduct, much to the astonishment of Elizabeth. Her husband came forth, begging Sarah not to leave. He even offered money, yet Sarah refused. Having exhausted all their efforts, the family resigned themselves to the reality. 
Sarah was 21 years old, no longer bound by their demands. If Eleanor and Sarah wished to be together, nothing they could do would stop them. A carriage arrived around the first day of May. The two women packed up their belongings, hired a servant named Mary Carroll, and set out on the journey to their new life together. Sarah caused quite a stir by her choice of dress. Instead of feminine clothing, she wore a gentleman's attire, complete with buckskin breeches and top hat, and took on the role of groom throughout the trip. From Waterford, an eight-day sea voyage brought them to Milford Haven. Immediately they headed for the North Wales countryside in search of their new home. By the middle of June, Sarah and Eleanor first arrived in the hamlet of Langollen. It was perfect, beautiful scenery, peaceful seclusion, and a main road stretching to Holyhead. Here they could enjoy tranquility while not being far removed from visitors and the latest news from London and Dublin. They took up residence at the Hand Inn and scoured the town for the perfect house. In the shadow of Dinas Bronze Castle, overlooking the River Dee, was a small stone cottage named Pen y Mays, surrounded by three acres of land. The women claimed it as their new domain, though the accommodations were a bit small for three people to live comfortably. As renovations began on the house, Sarah and Eleanor traveled through the countryside in search of carved oak to fill their new castle. All manner of carvings, from church pews to abbey decor, were gathered to evoke a dark Gothic interior. Within a few years, the conversion to a two-story manor was complete. They christened it Planuid, Welsh for New Hall. Being a small town, the two newcomers quickly became a curiosity. They could often be spotted on horseback, dressed in fine men's clothing, exploring the hills and dales. There was hardly a deficiency of visitors. Friends and famous names would drop by for a visit as they passed through the county. Still, the ladies of Langollen, as they became known, were gracious hosts. Though construction costs led to insurmountable debt, they welcomed everyone with tea and refreshments. The extent of their relationship has been cause for speculation since their first arrival. No one is certain of the exact level of intimacy or sexuality shared by these two ladies. Both women shared a bedroom as well as the bed. Perhaps because of this, they refused to spend the night at any other house than their own. In their correspondences to each other, they often referred to one another as My Beloved or My Love. One of their dogs was named Sappho, after the female Greek poet with strong homoerotic references. It is widely accepted that they were, in fact, lovers, having a far more romantic friendship than convention would allow. Given the noble family connections, any mention of a possible homosexual relationship was often overlooked by everyone who encountered them. Meanwhile, word spread beyond Denbyshire of the delightfully witty, intelligent women. There was hardly a moment's peace at Planuid. Visitors, notable and nameless, called upon the women from dawn until dusk. Josiah Wedgwood, the celebrated potter, paid them a visit in the late 1700s. Writers and poets spent the night as guests in their humble home. Mary Shelley and Lord Byron delighted them with their literary prowess. William Wordsworth immortalized the pair in a poem composed in their garden during a visit in 1824. Glyn Cafelgorach in the Cambrian tongue, in ours the veil of friendship, let this spot be named, where faithful to a low-roofed cot on Diva's banks ye have abode so long, sisters in love, a love allowed to climb even on this earth above the reach of time. 
Throughout their lives, Sarah and Eleanor amassed a large collection of objects and gifts. Their house became piled with clocks, trinkets, and newspapers. Financially, they managed to survive with the help of friends and assistance from the government. Even in their elderly years, the ladies were by no means wealthy. Planuid did not legally become their property until 1819. By the time Sir Walter Scott spent an evening with the ladies of Langollen in 1825, they were mere shadows of their former selves. Their faithful servant, Mary Carroll, passed away in 1809, leaving the women on their own. Their memories weren't as sharp as they once had been, and the effects of age were evident. They each hobbled about with the aid of canes. Eleanor was in her late eighties, with failing eyesight and hearing. She passed away by Susan's side on June 8, 1829, at the age of ninety. From that day on, Sarah ventured from the house religiously. Her only destination was the churchyard, where she would stand beside Eleanor's grave in silent contemplation. Her own health gradually declined, in part out of loneliness and heartache. On December 9, 1831, the first flakes of snow fell upon the town of Langollen. Sarah passed away quietly in Pla Nuid. She was buried with Eleanor beneath the Gothic tombstone, reunited again with her beloved companion. Following the ownership by the ladies of Langollen, two other spinsters, Amelia Lolly and Charlotte Andrew, lived in the house emulating the lifestyle of Butler and Ponsonby. A later owner, General John York, added on to the structure and was responsible for its Tudor exterior. By 1933, Langollen Urban District Council acquired the property and opened it to the public. Though it has changed hands to the Denbyshire County Council, it remains open for public touring to this day. While no person currently lives inside the former residence, some previous owners have refused to leave. Sarah Ponsonby and Lady Eleanor Butler began to make an appearance in Planuid not long after their deaths. Their specters would appear to men visiting the home, giving rise to the superstition that only males were able to witness their apparition. This claim was dismissed in the late 1800s when they appeared to Mary Louisa Gordon. She conversed with the ghosts on a few occasions before turning their story, as told by the spirits, into a book, Chase of the Wild Goose, published in 1936. Paranormal activity occurs throughout the dwelling. Strange mists and lights have been captured in photographs. In the Oak Room, guests report dizziness and nausea. This room is often the center of unexplained knocking and rapping, along with the cold spots which occur throughout Planuid. While some modern visitors experience uneasiness on the ground floor, most report tranquility and comfort throughout the house. The ghostly presences of Eleanor Butler and Sarah Ponsonby appear to be very welcoming to guests as they were during their lifetimes. Their former bedroom has an inviting, serene feel. It is believed by some psychics and investigators that the ladies still carry on their daily lives within the walls of Planuid. Though witnesses have reported encounters with the women throughout the year, legend persists that Eleanor and Sarah most often make their appearances known on Christmas Eve. The haunting linger of their love flows through the hollow recesses of Pla Nuid. As true love never dies, the manor built out of the love of these two women carries on through the centuries. As twilight encloses Butler Hill, sweet murmurings and the rustle of linen waft through the halls. United in eternity, Lady Eleanor and Sarah enjoy the comforts of their fine home from beyond the grave. 
Planewid, Hill Street, Langollen, Denbyshire, Wales, LL2088AW, 44-1978-861-314. That was an excerpt from Queer Hauntings by Ken Summers and read by Robert M. Clark, and it's out now in paperback and audiobook from Lathe Press. Ken Summers is a paranormal historian, writer, and Fortean researcher. He was born and raised in Northeast Ohio. He's always held a strong interest in ghosts and unexplained phenomena. Over the last 18 years, Ken has researched and investigated countless local hauntings and strange historical incidents. He has appeared on WWS, Fox 8, and WOIO in conjunction with new stories dealing with local ghosts, and has been featured in both Cleveland Scene Magazine and the Akron Beacon Journal. Ken served as treasurer and vice president of LGBU Kent, now Pride Kent, at Kent State University in the late 1990s. As an out gay paranormal investigator, he began questioning the existence of queer ghosts after an encounter with the apparition of a friend who committed suicide in 2002. What began as a series of blog posts about LGBT ghosts became the book Queer Hauntings in 2009. Ken is currently a ticket agent for a scenic railroad and senior editor for Week in Weird. He lives in Northeast Ohio. He's always on the hunt for other LGBT ghost stories, so if you have any leads or stories, he'd love to hear them. Please do get in touch at moonspenders.com or at moonspenders on Twitter. Thanks for listening.